Hello everyone, uh, it's Paul Aronowitz here, and I thought I would try something new today before diving into this interview with Dr. Emily Leisure about bedside presentations and bedside rounding, and that is I'm going to read you a poem, and this poem is by a poet in Nebraska, because Nebraska and the University of Nebraska comes up in this interview. And this poet's name is Kwame Dawes, and he's a poet I've been reading recently. He was born in Ghana and later moved to Jamaica, where he spent most of his childhood and early adulthood. And in 1992, he relocated to the United States and eventually found himself an American living in Lincoln, Nebraska. He's currently Chancellor's Professor of English at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and he's the author of 21 books of poetry and author or editor of numerous other books of poetry, fiction, criticism, and essays. And the poem I'm going to read you is from his most recent book, which is called Nebraska, and it's poems by Kwame Dawes, and the poem is called Loneliness. Loneliness. I have taken to talking to trees in midwinter, never those at the edges, the safe ones gazing at the highway. I go deep inside where the snow is powdery, crystal under light. We talk, the branches rub together like insects hissing. The cold calms even my jittery heart. The silence is absolute here. Each step I am startled by the hollow echo of leather on brittle snow. Again, Kwame Dawes from his book, Nebraska. And let's dive in to this interview with Dr. Emily Leisure. Well, today I'm thrilled to have Dr. Emily Leisure visiting the Mountain Lion podcast studio via telephone from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Uh, This podcast is part of a series of interviews that I'm conducting on bedside presentations and rounding. So rather than getting into detail about why I'm interviewing Emily for this series, I'm going to let her introduce herself, and then we'll get into her involvement in bedside presentation and rounds. So Emily, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself to our podcast audience and telling us a little bit about where you grew up, went to college, medical school, residency, and what your um, current and maybe past institutions and roles have been thus far. Sure, no problem, and thank you for having me. Um, So I grew up in a smaller suburb of Minneapolis called Shakopee, Minnesota, and then I attended college at Loyola University in Chicago. I attended medical school at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, and actually that's where I matched for residency, but I only completed my intern year there, having recently gotten married at that time and my husband serving in the Air Force, I actually transferred in the middle of residency, and that's how I landed at University of Cincinnati as a PGY2 resident um, and completed my training there. I stayed on and um, was a chief resident there and then a uh, first-year faculty member before I again had a, a move with my husband's Air Force career to Omaha, Nebraska. I worked at the University of Nebraska Medical Center um, for four years until my husband completed his commitment at that Air Force base. And after that, in 2015, I moved to Rochester, Minnesota, where I've been ever since at Mayo Clinic. My roles, after my chief year at University of Cincinnati, I was fortunate enough to step in 
to an associate program director role under Eric Warm, um, who's still a mentor of mine. And then when we moved to Nebraska, um, after my first year there, I became an associate program director as well and served as such for three years there. And then um, I have been an APD of the Internal Medicine Residency Program here at Mayo for the past year and a half. Wow. So you have uh, moved from a chilly area of the country in Cincinnati to a colder area in Nebraska. Yeah, moving up. <laughs> yes. Eventually you'll be in Alaska, it sounds exactly. like. But hopefully hopefully uh, only if you want to be there. Um, well, so one of the reasons I... Oh, and the other thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, what do you like to do for fun outside of work? I would say my number one um, thing that I do for myself outside of work is running. I run quite a bit. Um, and I also like how that can be done anywhere and at meetings. I like how I can network and catch up with all my prior colleagues on morning runs at meetings. Um, and then I also have three children. And of course, I mentioned my husband. And so spending a lot of time with my family. Excellent. And are you a competitive runner? Do you run in races? I, I Competitive is a strong word for me now. I did run competitively in college, um, both cross-country, well, cross-country, indoor and outdoor track, and then just changed over to running for fun and did road races through medical school and residency. And now, you know, took some time off, had kids, um, and I actually so did just complete my first marathon this fall, transitioning from being a middle distance runner. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And which marathon did you do? I did the Twin Cities. Oh, excellent. Um, well, I'm happy to hear you're still able to run. And I should add for our podcast listeners that uh, that's sort of where I first met Emily was passing her and Eric Warm while they were running on a trail in Denver uh, at the Association of Program Directors in Internal Medicine meeting uh, just this past fall. Um, so, Emily, one of the reasons I wanted to spend some time talking with you is that you've been at several institutions and participated in attending rounds in different ways at each of those institutions. And I was wondering if you would mind telling us about your, I guess we could call it a journey through a few institutions and how you were involved in developing bedside rounding focus at, at least a couple of those places, if not more. Sure, absolutely. So I would say my interest um, first developed because of probably the leadership of Eric Warm at University of Cincinnati, but also we had, you know, we worked closely with our med peds colleagues, and they at University of Cincinnati were far ahead of us in terms of uh, family-centered bedside rounding, and so some of our peer educating faculty who would do some teaching on the um, peds wards versus the adult IM wards, they were some of our most expert <laughs> colleagues at teaching us sort of the benefits and the styles and the tips on what works, what doesn't work. And um, for us, uh, what, what made me get the most interested, I'll be honest, was during my chief resident year, my co-chiefs and I chose to do a project, um, a QI project, uh, investigating how much our patients were actually understanding uh, along their inpatient days. And we asked a series of very simple questions to the patient, to the primary resident or medical student managing the patient, to the senior resident, to the faculty physician, and also to the bedside nurse on the day of discharge for the patient. And we asked the patient, um, what were you diagnosed with? 
this hospital stay or what, what did the physicians treat you for? Um, how did they treat you and what's the plan when you leave in summary? There were a few more questions than that. But the findings, and these were actually video recorded encounters and interviews, the findings were shocking. There were, by chart review and by talking with the physicians, we'd find out a patient had a, a fairly life-threatening cause for their shortness of breath, like a thrombus. And if you ask the patient, they really had no understanding of why or of that diagnosis and therefore had no intention of picking up the blood thinner that was prescribed. Um, or they had, a, the nurse had one plan for follow-up and she was going to be delivering the discharge instructions versus the intern versus the staff physician. So we were, we were amazed at the amount of um, just confusion there was even within a team that thought they all knew the plan and thought that they had communicated that plan well to the patient. And the patient, unfortunately, so many times was leaving with an inaccurate or an incomplete view of all the work that had been done behind the scenes on their care and also what types of information they might need to best manage themselves moving forward. So I would say that project really opened our eyes um, as to maybe some of the problems in the work that we were doing and working really hard at doing that work well, but realizing maybe the outcomes um, weren't what we thought they were and that our efforts were misaligned. So it was with, I would say that project really gave us this burning platform to build institutional support around the idea of taking what our MedPeace colleagues were already doing and implementing it more on a, on a patient-centered bedside round level in the IM wards, and we did gain a lot of institutional support. So we were able to roll it out quite um, uh, robustly within the IM teaching wards. We actually had an acronym. It was a big project. There was a lot of um, advertisement around it and energy around revitalizing the patient experience. And, um, and unfortunately, like I said, I was only there for one year. But through that year, I got to participate in um, developing the plan, making educational videos, teaching all of our core faculty, um, actually rounding in this way month after month with the residents. I was director of the, the hospital ward that the team um, rounded on, so I was there even in my off weeks kind of helping to coach and teach the other teams. And so it was, a, it was a really awesome experience for me, and I didn't round that way as a resident, but then to learn to round this way as a teaching attending was just awesome. So that was my experience at UC, and then um, when, I, when I found that I'd be moving and I moved to Nebraska, I I'm sorry if I could just uh, Emily, if I could just interrupt yeah, one second. And please. what and what year was that that you, you kicked off the? Uh, yeah, bedside? thank you. I'm sorry. That was back in 2010. 2010. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Keep going. That's no, okay. So then in 2011, when I moved to Nebraska, um, I joined a group and and first just tried to feel out how people round, and they had me shadow a physician on on the teaching wards so I could see how things were done, and and in just asking some of the teaching faculty, it was clear that. Um, the, the teaching faculty did not do bedside rounds. They did more what they would, and what we all would consider likely more traditional rounds, or what have become traditional of rounding in a conference room or rounding from room to room, but talking in the hallway and then going in to deliver the plan. So I was still so energized from my experience that you see that I took a stab at the first team that I was going to be rounding with. I just asked the senior resident, I said, hey, you know, this is how I did things at, at Cincinnati. What do you think? And I think I was just very fortunate to have a enthusiastic senior resident who said, oh, absolutely, that sounds really interesting. Let's 
positive, you know, uh, murmurings within the residency spread, and I had other faculty and residents asking me about it. So I eventually had um, the opportunity to share the, what I was doing with some of my peers and um, help share some of my um, handouts that I give residents, information about patient-centered rounding and scripts and things that kind of help people understand what that means. And I had some early adapters take it on with me. And so I had several teaching faculty doing it with me at Nebraska, um, which was awesome. And so I do feel like in the time I was there, I was able to roll it out with some success. I would say every, you know, the Cincinnati with Eric's leadership, we were able to do it. I rounded that way almost all the time. And then at Nebraska, I would allow a little bit more flexibility to say if it if a team was struggling with the style or um, we just happened to have a really tricky census, you know, I was very flexible with it. And I definitely learned some lessons through that. And then finally, when I've rotated now to Mayo in 2015, um, I've tried to, again, adapt and learn what works well here. And I found that, uh, again, really no teaching faculty were rounding that way. And I have found it more challenging and have not been as brave to try to roll it out here, but I am building some confidence and building some personal uh, plan to, to uh, overcome some of my perceived barriers to doing so. And have you tried at all at Mayo doing that, like uh, convincing a resident here or there that it might be a fun way to, to see patients? It's funny you bring that up because I, I, one of the reasons why I feel more energized to try it now is I've brought it up with a few residents, um, and just recently a resident said, gosh, you know, we debriefed at the end of my time working with them, and I said, you know, I think you would be really great at bedside rounding, and here's, you know, how I rounded at other places, and the resident said, gosh, I actually really wish you would have rounded that way. That's how I did it in medical school, and I loved it. And so I found that I actually had a missed opportunity to meet the needs of the learner by not doing bedside rounding. So that made me realize that as more places around the country are exposing medical students to it, and now that I feel like I've been here long enough to have built some of my own street credit, I feel brave enough to try it, I think. <laughs> and, and do you remember which medical school that resident had attended? I, I University of Wisconsin-Madison. Okay. Oh, interesting. Huh. And so when you helped to kick off the patient-centered uh, bedside rounds at University of Cincinnati and initially started it, you know, it sounds like you guys learned a lot from our MedPeds colleagues. Mm-hmm. And what percentage of bedside, or I should say attending rounds, were done at the bedside, would you say, as you guys were beginning to dip your toes, so to speak, in the water of bedside rounds? You know, we were very ambitious initially, and between Eric and I, we asked all of the teaching faculty who taught on two of the medicine teams, those that had geographic wards. Um, That was the other element of the project we rolled out. We felt that we had to give something back to the teams who were doing this, and so by having more of their patients co-located in the same location, they would then be able to do bedside rounds more achievably by having the time. So for those two of the four teaching teams, we asked all teaching faculty to do it every time they were on service. And so I would say we, just by by um, by asking it in this way or saying that that was a requirement, we had people trying it all the time. I know that there were not all enthusiastic about it, and definitely we had some 
who were pretty vocal about not liking it and feeling like they were a better educator by rounding it a different way. And so we learned a lot from inquiring more about that by, and also learning that maybe we didn't equip our uh, peers with all the, all the flexibility and tools that they needed to be successful in this rounding style. So I would guess, but I would have to ask Eric this, that after that first year, the numbers probably dropped off a little bit after it was just the ask of trying. And, um, and then I think he's probably rebuilt it in a better way. But initially, it was probably a big peak of, of efforts at trying it, and then probably a, a drop off as people got frustrated or found that it took so much time. So when you initially started it, the, was it like close to zero in terms of the yeah. percent? Okay. And then and then you got the two out of the four teams, the yeah. geographic teams doing it. I see. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And do you have a sense, the faculty that were skeptics, um, how did you sway them to continue doing it? You know, I think um, some of the strategies we used is offering to come shadow on rounds to see sort of where things that would go too long in the rooms or opportunities to teach um, scripting to make things go better or to show how teaching can be done just as effectively with a whiteboard in the room as it can be in the hallway. It took a lot of demonstrating and debriefing and you know we we had the luxury of doing that with the residents and helping them through multiple days in a row of doing it this way to kind of get their buy-in but it was hard you can't just have a noon conference on it and then expect the faculty to all be experts and and not allowing them to be experts is on us you know we want them to feel really comfortable and confident in their teaching and so I think um, those were, I would say, the time commitment in the room and making sure that all educators still see how they can be great educators in front of the patient, that, that took more deliberate time and one-on-one um, -on -one attention to kind of troubleshoot situations with faculty. Fascinating. And so jumping ahead to Nebraska, when you got yeah. there, was it close to 0% that yeah. were doing bedside yeah. rounds? <laughs> and what percent would you say were you know, roughly of all the general medicine rounds were being done at the bedside by the time you left and went to Minnesota? Yeah, that's a good question that I'm not sure I know the exact answer to. It's still probably, you know, 25%-ish, so, so less than 50%, but it was, um, it was, we were making progress. <laughs> oh, interesting. Um, and then at Mayo, we kind of we kind of talked about yeah. kind of hanging back a little bit. It sounds like and waiting for the right opportunity to jump in. Um, so you're you're obviously I'm mean, just talking with you. You're very enthusiastic, if not passionate, about bedside presentations with your teams. What is it that gets you so excited about it? What is it that you like so much about this form of of attending rounds? Well. You know what I tell the residents on day one every time I work with them, and it, it honestly is as much for me as it is for them to remind myself and to remind them of what about our jobs keeps us going and makes us excited. And it's always the patients. It's always the time with the patients. And so I, what I tell the residents and what I firmly believe myself is when I learned how to do medicine, quote, well on the inpatient side as a resident, what made me a good resident was being a religious checklist maker. You know, every day I ask myself, okay, what work needs to get done today? And it was 
it was seen through the lens of like, what do I need to get done to get my work done and leave the hospital? And that was, was fine for the short term, but that was a recipe for, I think, burnout and disaster when the work is seen as a checklist of tasks, um, as that being the main driver of the barrier between you and your, your life outside of the hospital. So what I, what I like to shift the framework both for myself and for the residents is to say, you know, what do the patients need from us today and help, you know, if, if we generate that conversation as we discuss the patients or think on our own as we are contemplating our list for the day, ultimately most of the needs of the patient can be met best through more time with them at the bedside and better communication and making sure we're all on the same page and delivering a consistent message, including with our nursing colleagues. And so I think once we make that framework shift, the ultimate checklist can look very much the same. You know, what a patient needs from us might be more time understanding their disease process, um, where in my original version of that checklist, it might say, like, go teach patient so that I can check that off. But uh, when I think about it in the second way, it's actually, as a team, really exploring their level of understanding and how we can help fill their knowledge gap. And that feels exciting because that's work that we can do because of our training and at the end of the day, we really make a difference in their life. And so I think building that case and, and living it through bedside rounds keeps me excited about it. I also don't feel like I ever burn out then of seeing patients because that's the work that brings us joy. Hmm. So if you're, so, you know, obviously you're speaking to a larger audience than just me, uh, ideally, when, when we post this podcast, but there's a lot of skepticism from faculty around the country about bedside rounds, whether it be truly patient-centered, i.e. less jargon and, you know, sort of more talking to the patient, and then I guess what you guys call patient-proximate rounds that Eric this morning when I was interviewing him defined as, you know, kind of being there in front of the patient, talking about the patient, but not necessarily to them. What are the, the biggest obstacles, would you say, to convincing faculty at our institutions that this is what you just described, a sort of affirming way to do your work, not to burn out, to enjoy being around patients, and to feel like you're, you're doing a good job and that they feel like you're doing a good job taking care of them? The biggest barriers to kind of convincing yeah. skeptics? Uh-huh. Yeah. What do, you, what do you think are the, the biggest things that keep people, more people from doing this type of rounding? I have a few thoughts on that. One, I would say that the, I'll use, I guess, also some of my examples of why as somebody who feels like I can bedside around very well, why I haven't been brave enough sometimes to, you know, to try it here. The one barrier is, I would say, just the evolving system change of shorter time periods on service with the residents. When I initially started as a teaching faculty, and I would have a month block with a team, I could really have the time it took to get good at this with the team and leave with a lot of confidence that everybody got what they needed out of the experience um, from an educational standpoint, including the patients getting what they needed. But as that time period shortened, I mean, I've only been out of residency for 10 and a half years, but through that time period, I feel like teaching faculty, because of their other clinical responsibilities, have shifted from one-month blocks to two-week blocks, and even here, I've only done one-week blocks at a time, and I'm, I think that's been a big barrier to wanting to really 
invigorate change when you know that you're rotating off and the next person won't do it that way or might not do it that way. So you feel like you want the investment to know it's going to make a difference for a bigger um, time period than the short time I have with that one team. Um, and I, I think, I do think that here, as well as other places, I think are seeing some of the drawbacks of the one-week coverage. So like in 2020, I'm actually moving back to two-week blocks. And so I think that's giving me confidence to try it. Another is the, the time piece. Um, I, I think where we went wrong initially in trying to convince skeptics at UC was we, we were convinced that if this was done well, it could actually end up saving time in the long run of the day that nurses would pay you less because the plan was more clear, uh, patients understood the plan better, so you'd be paged less for the bedside. But when it came down to it, rounds do take longer by doing patient-centered bedside rounds. And I think once we could be more honest about that, we realized then we might need to better adjust the census to allow for this. And, um, and like I said, just be transparent about that the time might be longer and it might be harder or, you know, harder to adapt to this style initially, but that it's better and worth it. So I think the time is another system issue that you'd have to adjust through um, census or an agreement with faculty that if they, if they could just try it with a couple of patients and then round as efficiently as they need to, to not take up too much time to meet the needs of the rest of the census, um, then, then I think that would be more easier to accept for faculty. Um, and then the last piece I think is real, and that is, you know, many teaching faculty, especially at a place like here at Mayo Clinic, there's a many, there are many, many gifted educators kind of vying for time actually with the residents, and um, time is prioritized to those who are seen as, merit, you know, merit-based educators that have gotten strong evaluations that are seen as, by the residents as as the people who should be teaching them. And it's a risk. It's a risk to change something that is working in the eyes of the uh, culture of the institution, working well. And so I think that there's a risk of, of your kind of ongoing time with the learners if you are going to change something and you're not sure how it's going to be received by the learners. Fascinating. So speaking of the learners, um, how, how do you perceive their perception of of bedside rounds, patient-centered bedside rounds, uh, particularly having been at two places where you sort of kicked off or helped to kick yeah. off this and then watched it evolve. I mean, how did, how did the perceptions of your learners evolve with that the addition of patient-centered bedside rounds? I think just like faculty, there's a range of attitudes toward bedside rounds from the learners. Um, but I definitely think there is something to be said about the level of training that they're at when you introduce it. I think that if there is sort of a line or a spectrum of priorities that the learners are looking for from their teaching faculty, you know, on one end would be the most hands-on, heavily visible, heavily present, and actively teaching faculty member. And then on the other end would be this faculty member allows me the greatest autonomy. You know, it's kind of not as present or behind the scenes and, and allows the, the learner to be um, really feeling independent and autonomous. And so, and I don't know that those need to be necessarily opposite ends of the spectrum, but I just think that the earlier the learner, like a third-year medical student, 
I find that the best evaluations I get are from those who see that I spend more time with that. You know, they want more time, more face-to-face -face teaching, um, a lot of guidance, and I can really get great um, evaluations from them if I give them that. And I think for them, bedside rounding is perfect because we're all there together at the bedside. We're emphasizing physical exam. We're coaching. We debrief afterwards and coach them on how they communicated and how they can do better. And they get so much time and attention and get to spend so much time with the patients. So I would say earlier learners, I've not had any trouble convincing that this is the right way to do things and to get them excited about it. And then kind of graduating, though, toward more autonomy and independence, I would say on the opposite end are the senior residents who, um, if they've not ever rounded in this way before, it's, it feels much more um, threatening might be too strong of a word, but where they're looking forward to their first time being the one running rounds, calling the shots, being seen as the leader, to ask them to try rounding in a way they've never rounded before puts them at risk of not looking like they know what they're doing. And, and there is that vulnerability of being at the bedside and being asked something that you don't know. And I think a senior resident is super nervous about that because um, they want to be seen as the leader and the, the soon-to-be attending, and they're nervous about what could get asked at the bedside. So I think there's more, um, I think it's harder to convince a senior resident to try to round this way than our earliest learners. Um, but having said that, I think if you have enough time with a, an experienced bedside rounding attending, I feel confident that you can build that trust and kind of convince most residents that this is really serving our patients' needs the best. Yeah, perhaps I'm deluding myself, uh, but I feel this the same way that when you know, as long as the residents are going and, you know, they have a computer in the room and they can look things up and enter orders and the intern can pop out to call an urgent consultation, I, I find that there's very few residents that once they're in that groove that they don't like it. Yeah. To the point where sometimes if we're having a really busy morning and I say, well, let's let's skip these, these last three, I'll go see on my own, we can talk about it in the conference room, they seem sort of disappointed um, it, it, it's interesting to yeah. watch the way that can potentially flip, but I think it's that art side of it too, right? Yeah. And I guess along those lines of the art side of this, because this is something you have worked at literally for over 10 years, um, what are your sort of most important, if you're t talking to somebody out in our audience who's who's listening to this and they are thinking, this sounds like it's worth a try, but in terms of that art of being successful at the bedside, you know, hopefully having all the learners enjoy it, the patients like it, do you have any particular key tips that have made you successful at it? I think it's important to start with the why. Like, I, I, I realized I think I mentioned this earlier, that I think you really need to help everyone get that shared mental model of, of what's important to the care of our patients, and to be honest, what's, what's important to us as, as trainees and for us as educators, and that's learning the art of medicine, but also giving our patients what they need, and if you can build that burning platform together, I feel like once the why is created, everything else starts to follow, and then I think success comes as well when you can remain relentlessly positive about it, despite the fact that there will be awkward encounters at the bedside. There are even if you're not doing bedside rounds. And so kind of rolling with it, being relentlessly positive, 
allowing a safe space to debrief quite regularly after interactions, that's, that's where I found just totally invigorated, to be totally invigorated as an educator is, is when we would debrief something that went beautifully, that shocked me that a resident or a medical student could traverse such a challenging topic so beautifully at the bedside, or when something really was going awry and somebody jumped in to, to aid the learner or ultimately I jumped in and, and where we then had to really debrief a potentially um, bad situation, that's where there was just this magical learning that would happen. And I think we all felt really strong about rounds that day, whether and it, it could be gained from a bad or a positive experience. So I would say that debriefing, remaining positive about continuing to try it. Um, that other tip that I mentioned is it, it's daunting, I think, to look at a big census, whatever big means at your institution, and say, do this with every patient. So allow novices at this to try it with the patients on their census that they see as potentially the best opportunities or the best cases. Um, and and that can be defined in different ways, but allowing them to try it and get good at it with, with a learner who's really engaged. Sometimes, you know, I ask if I have three interns, I'll ask all of them, I'll tell them about it and say, you know, who's interested in trying this? And inevitably one will be like, oh, I love this. Let me do it. And I'll say, which one of your patients? This one. Great. Let's do it. So you, you kind of capitalize on the enthusiasm of the learner rather than assigning the patient and telling <laughs> potentially the one learner who's least excited about it to try it. So I would say that. And then my, my last tip would be still allowing for rounding flexibility. I think showing our learners um, the respect of the fact that any given day in residency could be particularly trying Weird things can get thrown your way, whether it's through your in-basket or through your life outside of the hospital, and realizing that if we need to adjust our style for that day or for that one patient, that that's okay, that we don't need to, there's, there doesn't need to be rigidity in it, and that um, we can help them decide when to adjust and be flexible. Wow, those are phenomenal tips. I love the concept of starting out with patients that would you know, to be the easier ones to do it with, that sort of QI term shrink wrap, sort of oh, yeah. shrink wrapping your expectations a little bit or shrink wrapping your initial goals. Um, so if you were to contrast the three different um, systems you've been in, I mean, I think Mayo's a little tougher since there's not, not so much um, bedside rounding, but say Nebraska and Cincinnati, did you find that there were different challenges in each place, or were they pretty much the same? I would say they were very similar. Um, you know, I would say one of the key aspects that can really be time-saving through the day, later in the day, and also to help reinforce a commu you know, communication at the bedside is really having the nurse partner with us, too, at the bedside. But there are so many um, pulls on the nurse's time as well. So the availability of the other team members, um, especially nursing, to be with us at the bedside, that, I would say, is a, um, an additional barrier we haven't talked about that is present in every hospital. Um, you know, I actually think one thing Mayo's Hospital has set up that I think is well structured to support bedside rounds is there's a, a call light outside the room to alert the nurse when bedside rounds or when rounds are taking place on that patient. And in our current model, that just means we're outside the patient's room talking about that patient so they can join us. 
and the, the information that is co-shared with nursing is so valuable. And so I think that that button, that would have been magical in Nebraska or Cincinnati to be able to push that and just have the nurse show up. Because that was one thing we struggled with is, like, do we have to hook page them? And, you know, it was, it was always challenging to try to have the nurse join us. But so that's one thing that I think could be, is a, probably a similar system issue everywhere that um, I already have identified the solution at Mayo. I just need to implement it. Um, and then the other challenges in terms of, um, you know, I think what are some of the commonly shared concerns with faculty and residents or the inevitable um, kind of uh, challenges that can present themselves at the bedside, I think those have been pretty similar. So once you've worked on this type of rounding in one place, I do think the skill set transfers easily to another institution. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I do know that one of our residents a couple of years back was from University of Cincinnati and um, just watching her present at the bedside was like watching this art form uh, <laughs> in terms of she was just so good at it um, you know and I you know I, I just sort of uh, I was along for the ride for sure on that one <laughs> um, any other last, I, you know, this has been a fascinating conversation just because you have this perspective that I was hoping you'd bring to this interview on three different institutions and the, because this is a challenging issue, I think, at a lot of places, um, even where there are faculty and residents that are interested in doing it. So I have no doubt your thoughts are gonna be helpful to our listeners. But any other last thoughts or tips before we go? Um, if I didn't say it before, I guess I'll emphasize to be um, patient and um, reasonable with your expectations of the timeline of a culture change. I think, um, you know, I, I saw pretty quick change at Cincinnati because I was fortunate enough to have not only a, a program director, but also an institution really uh, promoting this. And so it was, the effort was like a light switch for now this is the way we round. And so people kind of had to had to do it, be on board, or, or you wouldn't be teaching. And so that that was a phenomenal way to, to try to move a culture quickly. But it isn't always that way, and that's okay. And so I think, you know, when I moved to Nebraska, and I sort of was at that fork in the road to decide, do I, because it had only been a year of bedside rounding, do I go back to the way I rounded all of my medical school and residency training, or do I do it the way I've done the last year? And it was so fun to, to see that you can start small and just start with my teams and then find a few other interested peers and teach them, and, and then that's okay, and that's enough, and you don't have to change the whole culture of an institution to still make a difference and expose uh, learners to this and peers to this. So I, I do think that um, being reasonable about expectations of your institution and of your program is key and that it's still worthwhile to try it. And I, I guess a logical final question I'd have for you, Emily, is since you've been at Mayo, have you thought of trying to replicate your original QI study that kicked all this off at University of Cincinnati, i.e. the burning platform of patients not really understanding their diagnoses or what the plan was and such, despite the best efforts of your teams? You know, I hadn't thought about it, but that would be fascinating to know 10 years later and at a different institution, how how is our care? <laughs> how is anything different? Because I, I think what you're hitting at, and I hadn't thought of before, is I think one of the, the intimidating things and maybe a barrier at a place 
the way things have been done and a lot of confidence in the trainees and the physicians we produce. And so kind of what's the old mantra, if it's not broke, don't fix it. And so maybe we need to investigate further if things do need to be improved or if there are opportunities for improvement in our bedside communication and time with patients. And, and maybe that proving that would actually give some more weight to the efforts here. So that's a great idea, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the next time you're approached by a resident or a student looking for a good QI project, you'd probably be the logical person to, to, to be the mentor on that. Yeah, that's a great idea. All right, Emily. Well, I want to thank you for joining me today. This has been so enjoyable to talk to you about this, and this is following up on a conversation I had with Eric uh, this morning for 35 or 40 minutes. Um, so I am sure that these will make uh, excellent podcasts and that our learners will really enjoy them. Well, it was my pleasure. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. Oh, you bet, Emily. Uh, hopefully I'll run into you at the next AIM or APTA meeting, whichever comes Literally first. and figuratively, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Have a good day, Emily. Thanks. You too, Paul. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.